on, Rosie. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded on Wednesday, the 28th of October, 2020. Which already, by the time we broadcast this, was a very different world, wasn't it, Joe? It was quite different, wasn't it? Do you want to say one of the ways it was different? We didn't yet know, although in some quarters they say we still may not know, but we didn't know who was going to become the next president of the United States of America. We were in the throes of the final days of the presidential campaign, weren't we? That's right, we were. And we were also in the throes of the final days of not being in a second lockdown in England. Um, although, as listeners will find out, that wasn't quite such a big deal for you. So when you listen to the podcast, and we sometimes talk about Donald Trump and Joe Biden, we don't, in the past, past Adam and Joe don't yet know what's going to happen. And also, past Adam and Joe don't realise there's going to be a national lockdown a few days later. So, so please bear that in mind. Seeing as the presidential campaign has now finished, quite a bit of satire-worthy things have happened that we didn't know about in the past. Things have been memeing themselves at a colossal rate, haven't they? So things like buy a lot and yeah. other, other ones of Donald Trump's tweets over the last few days. And of course, not just what he's tweeted, but the places he's meted, which is where? That, uh, the, <laughs> the Four Seasons Garden Centre. Four Seasons Landscaping, I'm Googling it, we'll cut this out, we'll edit this out. Four Seasons Total Landscaping, Make America Rake Again. Yes, which uh, they were trying to book a very famous hotel called the Four Seasons Hotel, and they booked a garden centre, and rather than acknowledging they made a mistake, they went ahead and did their rally there, didn't they, at the garden centre? Yes, they did, and that's um, generated an awful lot of comedy, hasn't it? (laughs) But we won't be talking about any of that because this podcast is in the past. Do you want to say something about it now, though? Well, just that Amanda Iannucci was asked for comment because it was so similar to the thick of it. What was his comment? Well, he did actually, he actually made a comment, but he retweeted his co-writer who did a tweet with a link to the story and then a link to where you can buy the thick of it on DVD. Cool. Did you know there's a Four Seasons landscaping in Leeds and one in Hull and one in Barnsley? Did not know that. Did you know that in the episode listeners are about to listen to, I also made a mistake? No, I didn't know that. So as part of the episode you're about to listen to, we're discussing the film Borat subsequent movie film, which came out a few days before we recorded. And we mention a prank that, he, that involved a innocent civilian called Janice Jones, who is one of the few people who we said came across benevolently and, and as a nice person in the film. Um, and I suggested that uh, she was horrified to discover it was a hoax because I'd read about that online. It turns out that she wasn't horrified. She was slightly shocked, but, uh, but, but not appalled. And then Sasha Baron Cohen has donated $100,000 to her community church, so she's actually completely fine now. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Do you want to, should we say anything else we didn't know, or should we just do the podcast? Just do the podcast. Go on, Rosie! Uh, where are you today, Joe? I'm at home, can you not tell? Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry, I didn't recognise, because you've, you've studied, you've... Decorated your study. my decorate, yes. <laughs> You've decorated your study. That's, that's a really nice job. Have you got a Jane area? I have got a Jane area, yes. But yeah, I've got several copies of Jane Eyre in my Jane area, in my nice bookshelves. But what is annoying is that I don't have a bookshelf. All my bookshelves are in front of me. So there's no way to convey to people that I've read a lot of books um, <laughs> because they're not behind me. But also I wanted to make a passive aggressive bookshelf in case I was ever interviewed on TV mm-hmm. or in case I was ever in a Teams meeting where I wanted to kind of make a subversive point. But I can't do that. So I've made subversive points through some of the pictures behind me. And the subversive points are... I like Blockton Reported, 
<laughs> um, and also I like Joan and Jerrica, which is maybe less subversive, but I've got those behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got anything good? What, any good books? No, any, anything good at all. Yeah. 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 I've got some framed pictures in my flat. I've got a, a framed picture of Better Call Saul, which I like. Yeah. I've got yeah. a framed picture of Kill Bill, which I like. I've got a framed picture of uh, a decomposing deer, which is from uh, a piece of art based on the TV show Hannibal. And uh, my most subversive print in my property is a print from uh, Dante's Inferno, which I have just above the door, because I feel like it's an ad adequate representation of, of my life in many ways. Is that particularly relevant for you at the moment or not? Well, Dante's Inferno? The idea that your home is some kind of hell. <laughs> um, hell is no other people. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 is, it, it is and it isn't. I, I am trapped. I am trapped at home at the moment. I legally can't be anywhere else, not because I've committed a heinous crime and can't leave my property due to having a tracker clamped to my ankle. That would Is it because you're in ex-CBBC programme Trapped, where the children got through in a dungeon if they didn't correctly guess how many blue beads there were in a jar or something like that? Do you remember that? You're trapped! I don't remember that, but the way that our statistics skew, I imagine many of our younger listeners will. Yeah, so anyway, you're trapped yes, because I'm tra you let the team down and well, now you're in a dungeon. Yes, basically. So yeah, it's because of the time of recording on five days into ten days of self-isolation after being alerted by the NHS Track and Trace app that I've been in close contact with someone who has subsequently tested positive for COVID-19. So I'm trapped inside my flat which is a kind of hell, but also, you know, I'm five days into my 10 day isolation now and I do find myself increasingly reflecting that I'm safer in here. It seems like they've changed the premise of that programme quite a lot then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's now no longer on CBBC, it's uh, on Sky One late at night after uh, the one about the people who were damaged by the nuclear waste, Chernobyl. Right, and you, but you're all right, are you? I'm completely fine, so close contact, is defined as within two meters for longer than 15 minutes. And honestly, I've seen so few people, I can confidently say that I haven't been in close contact with anyone who has subsequently tested positive. So I can only assume that it's something to do with the, the Bluetooth on my phone connecting with the Bluetooth and other people's phones. I mean, for listeners who aren't in the UK, <clears throat> the way this app works is that you check into buildings and if presumably if someone in that building tests positive, they then, I'm, I'm guessing, they don't tell us how it works, but I'm guessing they then cross-reference that with people who have been within a certain distance of your phone using the Bluetooth that you have to leave on at all times. So I can only assume that my phone has been near the Bluetooth of a phone of a person who has subsequently tested positive. Well, that's good. And I guess you get to have a little break whilst you're whilst you're locked up in your personal house <laughs> well not really no because in the dystopian hellscape we live in you can i mean it's good in a way you can do everything from home so you know my job has moved completely online so i've had all the all the same work i would have had to do before uh, only now i've been doing it from my kitchen table which i've had to carefully modify to stop myself getting a musculoskeletal injury from from working at home all the time but yeah so i've just been recording lectures delivering online seminars all the time which i'm grateful for really in in many ways i've not thought much about not being allowed to leave the property because it's been a normal week yeah but you'll be you'll be back out there again near all the phones next week midnight from sunday but i think this time when i re-enter society i might leave my phone in the office when i go teaching or uh, or possibly if i go to the pub i just turn the bluetooth off so that's really responsible. <laughs> I'm not really going to do that, listeners. That would be the worst thing to do. I'm going to continue being a, a, a decent citizen and protect myself. And no, not myself. You don't protect yourself, do you? Protect others 
and protect the NHS. Yeah, and of course, the other thing you can do online from inside your personal inferno is record a podcast. We can. I mean, did you realise that uh, as of this episode, we will have recorded more episodes in season two remotely in our own homes than we ever did in our recording booth? That is crazy, isn't it? Um, I can't even hardly remember what that booth was like. But I mean, also season two has been going on, I think, I think since um, I was a small child. So, I mean, it's kind of hardly surprising, as has COVID. Yeah, it's, it's hard to remember a reality where there was no COVID and where we didn't record the podcast in our own home. It's been going on so long that when we recorded episode one, What Even Is Satire, I was like Tristan Shandy, in the sense that I was not yet born. <laughs> Yes, yes, you were. I remember thinking that at the time. Um, but it certainly does. Um, it does speak to how versatile the podcast medium is, doesn't it? It does. I mean, that, that's the beauty of podcasting, the freedom of the medium. Could we do this with a radio show? Not on you, Nelly. With podcasting, it's just you and the mic. If it was a radio show, we'd be casting around two microphones, a mixing deck with jingles and adverts and a telephone switchboard. And then there'd be us and some sort of sidekick, the guy with the degree who reads the news, a producer, an assistant producer, whatever that is. And then a woman from the sales team who keeps coming in every five minutes to say, don't forget to mention the weather is sponsored by Millets. Oh, hang on. How would we know that about radio broadcast? Have we ever been on the radio? Well, I've been on the radio several times. I've been on the radio as well, but we've never made, made a radio show, have we? No, no. Oh, no, you're right. I think we've got confused. Oh, we did. We've confused our words for the words of Alan Partridge in his new podcast, From the Oast House. Which is just one of the things that we'll be talking about in this episode, which is a very special roundup of everything that's happened in the world of satire since September. Yes, I feel like our preambles are getting a bit like our season two, aren't they? They just never end. So let's stop it now. Yes, listeners, welcome to Smith and Wars News of Satire. Hello, now should we do the podcast properly? Yes, so um, just before we do the podcast properly, who are we and what are people listening to? Well I would say saying that is part of doing the podcast properly but I'll tell you anyway, I am Dr Joe War, a senior lecturer in 19th century literature. Who the hell are you? I'm Dr Adam James Smith, senior lecturer in 18th century literature and of course co-host of this podcast which is called Smith and War talk about satire. What happens in this podcast, Joe? Well, we talk about satire, don't we? And sometimes we talk about satire with guests and sometimes we talk about satire all on our own. One of the, one of the things that, that's quite nice is that when people do give us a yell, which everyone should do if they're aware of the podcast, they often say they enjoy the episodes with guests, but they also enjoy the episodes without a guest, which is nice to know, isn't it? Yeah, so they're happy either way, aren't they? We are, sometimes it's okay for us to be the main event. Um, yes, I think so. It's our fucking podcast. That's right. Uh, so we're doing the form, function, future and history of satire in a, in a reckless bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research. And today we're doing a roundup of the news in satire. So we've already alluded to it. Alan Partridge's got a new podcast from the, from the uh, you know, the podcast that's called From the Oast House. Well done. Um, <laughs> is that the first time you haven't called it From the Outhouse? 
I think it is. And we've both listened to it and we both enjoyed it. I mean, did you, do you want to have any, do you have any comments about it, Joe? Do you want to talk about it for a second? Yeah. I mean, I can't believe that you can't remember the name of this because I found that when I was obsessively listening to this every time I walked anywhere, I was kind of waking up in the morning with the jingle from this on the brain. Alan Partridge from the Oast House. It's a very annoying theme tune, isn't it? Yeah, well, I haven't been calling it from the outhouse. I've been saying Oust House. Oh, yeah. But then when I said that to you, you looked at me in a a frightening way and said, Oust House. (laughs) That's that's my pedagogy, that. Look at people in a frightening way and say it properly. (laughs) It's not really. It's not. Yeah, yeah, so it's got a jingle that's repeated a lot of times. It's a very interesting podcast because... Alan fans will will lap up anything Alan Partridge does, obviously, and rightly. And this is kind of pure long-form Alan in a way that I think works really well. It's also, Alan Partridge is in itself kind of a satirical character, isn't it? You know, he satirised the form of the chat show and the, the magazine TV show and the documentary. But in this one, of course, he used to an extent satirizing or at least critiquing the form of the podcast itself it's apparent that alan has done this because no one's giving him any work anywhere else really isn't it and that he can he can do this on his own in his hat and he can make it as self-indulgent as he pleases ramble on about various things and you can see that he cynically tries to hop genre a few times doesn't he so he says like now it's going to be a true crime podcast or this week um he's going to make you cry by doing the the stuff about his grandchildren that he doesn't see so it's very well observed it's also just incredibly funny and very very much slicker than other podcasts i could name such as our podcast (laughs) but then as as a podcaster um there are Mm. bits in it that that really that really resonate so when he'll do something or something will go wrong or he'll go off because it's alan he goes off on tangents all the time does he and then sometimes yeah. he'll, he'll go oh, i'll edit that out but then obviously by virtue of the fact that we're hearing it he hasn't bothered to go back and edit it out this is something that really that the whole new dimension to alan came was unlocked i think when he started to do those mockumentaries yes particularly um Scissor because it's directed, produced and written by Alan Partridge. So there's there's the comedy of seeing him on the screen, but then there's comedy of when it cuts, where it cuts, what he thinks is a cool thing. And you get that in this as well, don't you? When he does edit it, when he does... Well, there's a bit where he's talking to that teenage boy who he's mentoring. He edits out all of the teenage boy's responses, doesn't he? And like things like that are really good. But when he says, I'll edit that out and he doesn't, at first I'm like, oh, are they, does that sort of damage the conceit? Because why did we hear that? But then I think it's funny that he didn't go and edit it out. But then since he's done that, the amount of times, because I listen to a lot of podcasts, that that, that happens. Like, um, I was listening to the Unspeakable podcast last week, and there's a whole bit where they start laughing about, they sort of go off on a tangent and they laugh, and then they say, right, well, I better remember to edit that out. But then obviously, by virtue of the fact you listen to it, they haven't. So those kinds of moments are, I think, really well observed. I was going to say, long form, Alan, like you say, it works really, really well. I mean, I think Alan Partridge has found his medium in the podcast, hasn't he? Because he can do it everywhere you get his opinions, but also they still manage to do situational comedy, even though it's just him speaking to the microphone. But it must have been so hard to write. It's like 18 hours and it's constant, isn't it? Like every single line is, is like there's a joke in every line. It's extraordinary. He's very adept, isn't he, at alluding to and exploiting the podcast format. And that, like you say, occasionally you think, well, if you said you're going to edit it out, then how come you didn't? But he manages to 
never to overplay that or overuse that too often. And this, this sound is brilliant as well. Like when he is apparently shouting to his housekeeper in the other room, it does sound exactly like that's what's happening or when a plate smashes in the, um, down the corridor in the kitchen or whatever. It's, it's really well done. It is. I've listened to it twice now. Um, mm -hmm. You've listened to it more than that. I think you listened to it three times. No, just, just twice. Um, so I listened to it as the thing I was listening to whilst going about my daily business. And then I realised there were bits that I'd missed. Or Well, basically, I wanted to be able to quote it loads. So I was kind of listening to it again for those bits. And I listened to it on a drive to Howarth Parsonage and back again, back in early September. It, it was no less good the second time. I mean, yeah, one of the things that really, that struck me as really interesting and, and effective and well done the second time is how many, how like it works as a piece of serialized storytelling. There'll be just tiny things that are inconsequential that then, because it's in his mind, because it happened to him recently, he sort of revisits or remembers himself. And then you end up with these, these undercurrents, don't you? So you notice the one about eggs. You, you hey. brought, um, and one of the other ones is that, so in the first episode, he ends up, is it the first or second episode when he goes for a walk and he goes, to that house and he's like let's see let's imagine who lives in this house and he ends up like basically peeping through the window and going in the garage and building this really elaborate story for what this man must be like who lives there and then obviously gets caught and then as he's leaving he's like just just before i go are you this 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 and this and the guy's like yeah i am and then by the end of the season i'm not going to go into it because i don't want to spoil it but like alan partridge's detective skills come in to play it turns out that he is really good at reading people and he is genuinely a good investigative reporter yeah. And I like that. I always like it when Alan gets a win. Yes, well, he's done the investigative thing a few times, hasn't he? Because he does it on uh, on this time when he uncovers the... Um, what's that What's that guy's name? The one, the one who wears a mask. So he's, he's done it then and he does it sometimes. Yeah. On, and he did it very early on in Knowing Me, Knowing You, where, with, when he gets the tabloid journalist on who does all the, the scoops on celebrities and then he films him going to have his back hair removed at a Harley Street doctor's. Yeah. What about private education for John T? Yeah. <laughs> that one, isn't it? Qu Quinty, wasn't it? Quinty. Yeah. Say sorry to Quinty. Yes. Yeah. So I would say From the Oast House is primarily not satire. It's just very clever and knowing and slick and a nice treat for Alan fans. But there are, there are elements of satire in there, aren't there, that are, that are pleasing to hear. Shall we talk about another podcast with a well, satirical We do. Trailer? I mean, the, didn't, when you were listening to the podcast, sort of fiction imitated reality, didn't it? Because Alan rescues and befriends a small woodland creature. And, uh, and you also encountered a, a small woodland creature. And both of you asked internet for advice. Yes. I think we have to talk about this because we teased it in the last episode. Yeah, all right. So, I mean, I, I still feel conflicted about this. But yeah, so Alan finds a magpie and he tweets that he's found the magpie and he's not sure how to look after it. And Alan, Alan is a man with significant means and time to do nothing but podcast and nurse a magpie back to health. And he, he does both of those things and instigates a kind of tenuous, nascent friendship with his erstwhile troll high noon um, through doing so. And yeah, you're right, life did imitate art. I think I'd only, uh, it was probably round about peak Oast House listening time when, yes, I was walking home from work and on the, on the first day back actually, the first day we'd met students in real life for some time. So that dates it a month or so ago. 
And yeah, I saw a little hedgehog running around on the pavement um, whilst I was on my way home late afternoon. And the stupid thing that I did was to tweet that and say that I wasn't really sure what I could do. And I should have, I, I just shouldn't have said that because replies came in after after a pause in which I would say, had I waited on Twitter, constantly refreshing the screen for advice, I think the hedgehog would have gone away by then anyway. But yeah, I um, got a bit of a more replies than I expected and some some quite heavy expectations that, uh, as to what I should have done um, with and for this hedgehog that were coming in for quite a long time afterwards, like, you know, days afterwards. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I should, I should have thought that through. People are not unreasonably kind of invested in, in that sort of thing. I was walking home with some bags. I, my options would have been to try to lift the hedgehog without hurting myself or the hedgehog and carry him across the road or to carry him a bit further along the road to the Shell petrol station or to carry him all the way home. Would have had to be in my backpack because I didn't have anything else to kind of carry him with and then um, dump everything at home and quickly sort of take him to, to a sanctuary. It didn't seem to me at the time to be practical to do any of those things. I didn't have anything to kind of safely and gently lift or move the hedgehog with. Um, and if I'd gone to seek out something, I guess when I came back, there's no guarantee the hedgehog would have been waiting for me to do so. But this was not good enough. I mean, having, watching this play out from obviously a distance, literally, and I saw it like a day after it happened. And the thing that struck me is that it happened you posted the video the first thing is it was a short video and this hedgehog was moving fast wasn't like it, it was like it, it was running running very quickly so it, i don't know how you catch a speeding hedgehog i mean because hedgehogs can be very fast like sonic for example like they can get they can get quite a speed up so um so i don't know about that but then yeah a lot of the comments so you getting quote tweeted and ratioed and people saying like you should give it some milk you should do this you should do that but like 48 hours after you'd spotted the hedgehog. So I don't know. Yeah, can I just say you shouldn't give it milk? That Luckily, was... I didn't have any milk on me. Yeah. Um, I hadn't used milk in my teaching that day, so I wasn't tempted. Things like I would, so one tweet was something like, I would at the very least pick it up and see if it needs to get across the road. At the very least. I don't know how you can tell if a hedgehog wants to be on the other side of the road. I don't, I don't know how it would indicate that preference. I, I, I don't, you as, as has become abundantly clear, I don't know that much about hedgehogs. It's one of those things, isn't it? Sometimes you're walking home and you see a, a bee that isn't well. And if, a, if you see that in your own garden or in your house, you can do the thing with the sugar water and it's quite miraculous how, how you can revive an ailing bee and that is that's a really good thing to do but if you're walking home and you don't have any of that stuff with you you can't do it and sadly it's just a thing you saw on your way home my daughter came out of um the fast food restaurant where she was working over summer and saw a kind of intact dead fox by the side of the road and said it was kind of really moving because it was still perfect but i'd obviously been knocked over it didn't occur to me to tell her she should have slung it over her bike and we could have taken it to the vet and see if it could be rescued. Sometimes you just see sad things or, or you don't necessarily realise at the time that they are sad and you can't stand there for half an hour or 48 hours until the advice comes in. But that said, I'm sorry about it. I shouldn't have tweeted it. And 
I won't do that again. And I did not enjoy that experience no. one bit. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you did it because it's been an education for me because I, growing up, I remember there used to be that Green Cross code advert with the hedgehogs in it, mm. crossing the road. And if you look left, look right, you're king of the road. And what I took from that wasn't that you should look left and right. It's that hedgehogs are really good at crossing the road. But it sounds like they're not. So, but I mean, that was, we both, I think we both are quite interested in, although we hold Twitter in some degree of scorn, we'd both like to get attention and <laughs> now we both know a quick way to get attention is to ask a rhetorical question with the image of a of an animal that people would have invested in yeah i suppose so and don't underestimate how invested they'll be i mean i want to be clear i'm not like criticizing anyone for being invested in that it's no. admirable but yeah i fucked up <laughs> oh it's like blocked and reported this isn't it where they have that bit where katie's had a tweet that's like gone massively viral and then she gets banned from twitter for a if week and, reported jesse would have done the tweet about the hedgehog and then uh, katie would have gone in and be like i just wanted to rile them up so i said that i like to kick hedgehogs into traffic or something like that and then it would <laughs> that's what would have happened i'm not to report um okay yeah, yeah. katie Herzog would have followed that up with a tweet about how she um killed the hedgehog or something would have she? and then she would have said it was a joke but and it would have been a joke i'm sure i'm sure it would have been a joke but so we're working yeah i don't have that kind of style so we're working through all the podcasts on your wall. So we've done, we've mentioned Alan Partridge, now we've mentioned Blockchain Reported. Let's talk about Joan and Jericho. Yes, because um, I think that we both watched in our separate infernos an evening with dear Joan and Jerrica the day before recording, which um, is the 28th of October. So yeah. Broadcast via Fane, which I'd never heard of before, but apparently they do all these kinds of audience with events. So yes, we both watched it. It's 18, 30, 100 hours yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think joe well do you think we should just contextualize what dear joan and jericho is first because we've mentioned them before on the podcast but not um, not in too much detail so yeah, it's idea. it's a podcast with um two by vicky pepperzine and julia davis and the premise is that these two agony aunts respond to questions that they're sent in in often grotesque misogynistic surreal and extremely funny ways and there's been two seasons of Dear Joan and Jerrica. And it, this is the first time that Joan and Jerrica have been joined by someone else because they were being interviewed by Adam Buxton, weren't they? Who was ostensibly kind of talking about their, talking to them in character about their book written in character, why he turns away. So, mm. yeah. And it was also the first time that I'm aware of that they've appeared like physically, in, physically in character. Yeah. So we've never seen what Joan and Jerrica looked like until last night. No, it's a lot like with us, isn't it? If uh, we, we've never appeared physically in public, no one, no one knows what Adam and Joe look like. But no, um, and I thought they looked perfect. They looked exactly as yes. I imagined they would. Even uh, the curly fringe. Yeah, well, it was clear that Joan had, had faked breasts and yes, everything, didn't it? Yeah. So, oh God, uh, we sound like Joan and Jerrica now. I'm going on about somebody's breasts on a podcast. This is horrible. <laughs> yeah. But we're talking about costume, aren't we? We're not. No, they were caricatured, weren't they, last night? So that was that was wonderful. I mean, I enjoyed seeing them. It was nice when they got in the flow of it, when they get going. They, I felt like it was a slightly more stilted than I was expecting because I don't want to say anything that you're going to say. So, well, I was just going to say, I felt like the way that Adam Buxton compared it, that the way that he hosted it, didn't really give them that much to deal with, that much to play with. So when I saw there was three of them, and it, when it started... The first, they st- immediately start making jokes about like, oh, is that what you're going to be wearing for the final show? Oh, I didn't think you were going to be wearing that. And then they sort of start doing to him what they do to their listeners. And I thought, oh, this will be funny. He can be a bit of a, 
a bit of a foil for them. But then he seemed to be both in on the joke too much, but also really, really guarded. Like he didn't give them hardly anything to play with. When they got in the flow, it was really good, but then it kept sort of devolving to Adam Buxton slowly reading out segments from the book. Yeah, I would have liked to see the two of them talk to each other more because those are the best bits in the podcast when, especially when Vicky Pepperdine kind of puts Julia Davis on the spot and or, or, and sometimes vice versa, but it usually seems that way and will kind of force her into corpsing or into saying something kind of really surreal or stupid yeah and there were a couple of moments like that but i would have i would have liked more but yeah one of one of my favorite things about joan and jerica is when nearly a year ago vicky pepperdine was interviewed on women's hour by jane garvey and it was because she was going to be in the christmas wurzel gummage but they also talked a little bit about joan and jerica and jane garvey was kind of saying she said oh you know the, the advice they give is very very sexist isn't it they're, they're never on the women's side they always tell the women they've probably got cancer and that they should be more giving in bed whereas they tend to let the men off everything and she said it's not very feminist is it and Vicky Pepperdine said no no it's not which of course means that if you're very clever it is and that I feel like that kind of sums up the nature of the the satire and the points that this podcast is making is that by caricaturing these horrifically misogynistic agony aunts who who blame women for everything what do they say last night like um in the 1970s dolls were better because they gave young girls something to aspire to so you could have surgery or or don't eat um, in order to get that tiny waist and big breasts so it's, it's an example of of satire in the sense of you know you kind of parody the thing and um, to make the point so we're not meant to necessarily kind of find it hilarious that a woman would be really misogynistic we're meant to reflect on where Joan and Jerrica are sometimes not a million miles away from people who give women advice in real life. And also, I, I feel like that's quite a neat way of thinking about feminism as well, because feminism isn't about saying women are strong, women can do anything, women face no barriers. In fact, the people who are anti-feminist in 2020 are less that you're not likely to find them saying women should stay in the kitchen and make my sandwiches. You're more likely to find an anti-feminist saying there is no problem for women anymore. We do not need feminism. That's the anti-feminist position to take now, I think. And the idea that feminism, yes, it can be about, it, it can just be about sort of parodying or drawing attention in other ways to all of the things that are wrong. Because you, until you've gone on and on and on about everything that's bad, uh, you can't can't go to the next place with it, can you? So I think, I think they're doing good work. I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. I think that's quite a neat. I'm jumping around a bit, but I think that's quite a neat segue into one of other items because the idea that they create these personas who are grotesquely exaggerated versions of like real life attitudes mm -hmm. and assumptions, and then you can see similarities, like you say, to people who are not a million miles away. And so that's exactly what Sasha Baron Cohen has been doing in Borat, with Borat generally, it's his whole shtick, but the new Borat film, where you create this extraordinarily racist, anti-Semitic, sexist character, and then drop him in real life situations and watch people agree with him. That's how that works, isn't it? But the next day I was reading this for a lecture I'm writing about uh, Henry Fielding, the 18th century novelist. And it's sort of talking about how, how the villains work in here, or how the satirical characters work, who are often villains. This is Fielding characteristic. He employs his criminal protagonists, at least in part to be a vessel of satire, the morally corrupt surprised to find themselves surrounded by worse beings than themselves. So in Jonathan Wilde, or Eric Smollett in, in um, Third Anthem, 
on those kinds of texts. What they, do, what they do is they create these absurd characters who are immoral and then put them in situations where characters who are supposed to be moral agree with them or sympathise with them. And it struck me that that is exactly what Sasha Baron Cohen is doing. Yeah, I mean, like you say, you have, you have jumped around a bit because we were going to talk about that later, but it's, um, it's good to jump around because you're in isolation and you're not getting any exercise. Absolutely. So shall we talk about Borat now? Uh, yeah, let's talk about Borat now. If that is Very nice. I think that could, because that's also a film which is interested in feminism, isn't it? Surprisingly. Yes. Yeah. So Borat, I I wasn't as keen on Borat in in its first manifestation. I don't know. Maybe I just didn't give it enough time. But um, this seemed to be an important film to watch at the moment, and has had a lot of hype around it. The premise is that he's got to sort of make amends for the reputational damage he's done to Kazakhstan. So he's going to go to America and present a gift to Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is it Mike Pence? Yeah. And initially it's going to be a monkey, but there's various plot twists, which mean it's his daughter that he never knew he had. So he takes, well, the daughter turns up in America in a crate and Borat reluctantly kind of lets her stay with him in a cage that he that he buys for her and then happens on the idea that he's going to gift her to the US government and that that will kind of reinstate good relations with Kazakhstan. Mm. So they then embark on a kind of dark inversion of well no it's not an inversion on a dark version of the kind of glow up sequence that we see in lots of american films so she goes to get her hair done and her makeup done and get some new clothes and learns how to behave in the ways she's going to need to it's like like the princess diaries but awful isn't it and so we have this situation where we've potentially been invited to think like fools that you know this in Kazakhstan it's barbaric this girl was kind of sleeping on a pile of hay and Borat doesn't care about her because she's not a boy and aren't foreigners sexist and wrong and stupid but then they get to America and encounter for example shop assistants who nod smile laugh and understand when you say can you please direct me to the no means yes section so that he can buy buy her clothes along those lines where she is advised not to come across too strong or too independent because men don't like that or where she's um well in in one of the most disturbing scenes where there's an elaborate plot by which she's eaten a cupcake that has a tiny plastic baby on the top down by the dumpster with her father and then they go to a pro-life parenting clinic and are told there that um, to get the baby out, which we know has a different meaning um, from the one they are inferring, would be a sin. The baby is one of God's creatures. The guy who talks to them believes, because he's been told, that Borat is the father, the incestuous father of this unwanted pregnancy. And he sort of says things like, well, that's not my concern. That's understandable. I get it. And we still can't abort the baby, the abort the fetus. Even knowing that or thinking he knows that this girl is 15 years old and impregnated by her father. In fact, it's not Kazakhstan where you'd be expected to carry that pregnancy to term. It's America in 2020. Yeah, it's very interesting that Sasha Baron Cohen has chosen to make a critique of contemporary America, largely, obviously, Republican America, but not always necessarily, in terms of the way it thinks about, treats and responds to women and girls. 
I think that's a really interesting decision. Yeah. I mean, moments like when he's at that, when they go to that ball and he's going up to the men and he's saying like, how much would you pay for my daughter? Or how much would you pay mm -hmm. for a night with my daughter? And then that one guy laughs, doesn't he? He says, uh, $500. And like, they're almost indistinguishable from the scenes in Kazakhstan at the start. Absolutely. I mean, obviously there's the scene that's been getting all the media attention. With, with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, yeah. I mean, what did you, what did you make of that? Well, um, I just, it's one of those moments, isn't it? It's like, wow, we, we actually live in a world where somebody who behaves like that is apparently secure in his job. So yeah. maybe we should just talk about the, what happens in the scene. Do you want to yeah. just give a synopsis? Yeah, so this is the former mayor of New York and Trump's lawyer uh, is interviewed to be, he's invited to a hotel room to be interviewed by Borat's daughter, who's posing as the host of a conservative TV programme. Um, he sits down with her. She touches his knee a couple of times, doesn't she, to sort of create a, a sense of familiarity. He keeps complimenting her. And, and she keeps saying she's very nervous and yeah. And, yeah. And he, he touches her a few, like touches her on the leg a few times. And then eventually when they do the interview, she thanks him. And then she says, would you like to come through to the bedroom? They go through to the bedroom. He, does he help her to help her take her jacket off or something? And then he starts, he sits on the bed and starts, puts his hands down his trousers and starts apparently fumbling with his microphone. Um, at which point... Sasha Baron Cohen comes in. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the the Mark's description of what happened when he phoned the police to say that a man dressed in transgender clothes came in, which was actually Borat in a like a pink bra and pants, wasn't it? And for Borat's coming in, he's like, "Leave my daughter, take my asshole instead," um, and it all descends, descends into chaos. So obviously, it's really predatory behaviour. I mean, it's all. I mean, some people have been quick to point out that it's all consensual. Like at no point did she say, no, I don't want you to put your hands down your trousers or whatever. And she invited and, and neither did she say that she was only 15. Yeah, yeah. So but that's, I mean, it, it's not okay for Rudy Giuliani to behave like that to an interviewer, whether they're 15, 25 or 35. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, if you're in a position, in, in that position, well, you don't do that. And if you're in that position, you think you'd be a particularly on your guard for this sort of thing, wouldn't you as well? But I mean, apart from all of that, which I did find disturbing, and I sat there, a gog at the screen like I couldn't believe that they that this was happening but like all the time this was filmed I think this was filmed in like July or August it was peak it was like peak pandemic time and he's not got a mask on he sat really close to it and he's coughing all the time yeah coughing yeah. all the way through it so I mean there's there's all sorts wrong with that so yeah fascinating yeah thing. Because I suppose it's it's not just a kind of takedown of Giuliani himself is it it's it's not just that Sasha Baron Cohen was out to make him look stupid, or I don't think it's just that. It's also what we come away with that from is that when men in positions of power like that are interviewed by people whose job is to kind of hold them to account and to ask them questions and to, to ask them to be accountable for the things that they do and the things that they say, hmm. if that person doing that questioning is female, they are putting themselves in the line of fire for behavior like that. And, and this is just a thing that goes on and that, you know, wasn't it, we didn't get any sense that this was the first or only time that he had felt it was that, that it would be fine for him to behave in that way. No. And, and that's, that's quite 
shocking. There are other good moments in the film or other interesting moments in the film? What I thought was clever was, um, and it comes back to what you were saying earlier, right, very, when he first arrives in America, he realises that some people recognise him as Borat from, mm. from 13 years ago. So he has to go and get a disguise. But when he's in the costume shop looking for disguises, he picks up one disguise, which is clearly a Borat costume with the captain, yeah. you know, like stupid foreign reporter costume, isn't it? And it's that idea that these people in America think, as you were saying, they think they're better than Borat in Kazakhstan. Like they all, they think, oh, that's a, that guy's stupid. And then throughout the course yeah. of this film, various people are revealed to be as stupid or, or, or just, or just worse. I mean, there's times, like the bit when, there's a bit where Borat goes to buy some gas, doesn't he? Yeah. And he, and he says to the guy, he's like, how many Jews could you gas with this canister? And the guy's like laughing. He's like, oh, a good few, a couple of roomfuls. And it's like, and then Borat's happy with that. Like it's sort of, the, they're worse than him and they're making him raise this game, which is extraordinary. Which actually links to the other scene that I found particularly uncomfortable, which is where Borat goes into a synagogue. He's yes. disguised as a, as a Jew. So he's got an enormous long nose and everyone can imagine. Um, and he's approached by two Jewish women and he doesn't want them to touch him because he thinks their touch is poison and he's all this. And they're very kind to him and they explain to him, they're, they're sort of like the only nice people he meets in the whole film and, and Holocaust survivors, which means that Borat is in a situation where he's like, oh no, the, the, the Holocaust did, didn't happen. And then they said it did. And then he's really pleased, but not because he's pleased because he wants it to have happened. And it's just horrible. But then I have read subsequently that they are the first two people that Sacha Baron Cohen has ever, ever told it's a prank too. Because I couldn't work out what the point of that scene was when I filmed No, it. I wasn't sure what that was intended to add, really, apart from, it, it was cheaper, I think, than... It felt like punching down to me. Yeah. Because the, the butt of the joke is Borat. But then mm. we, know, we know that Borat's fictional, so what's to be gained from that? Yeah. That's, it's interesting in terms of punching down, isn't it? Because I've seen a couple of responses that say, that are people saying they're uncomfortable with it because it's, it's essentially Sasha Baron Cohen going around taking ad advantage of people's good natures and making them look stupid. And on occasion, he does do that. And, and that's always been his shtick, as it was with, with Ali G as well, in his other most well-known persona. But I think, like, I don't know if this is what Baron Cohen was intending, but as well as being, yeah, I think this film is going to remain important for so many reasons, for the light that it shines on America, for the fact that it's, it happens as COVID is happening and this unfurls as the film is going along. But also because he's taken in by two QAnon types, isn't he? When he's wandering on the streets and they, they take him to their sort of underground house and befriend him and look after him. And then he goes to the rally and inspires the, the crowd to kind of raise their hands in Nazi salutes and applaud the idea of chopping up scientists like, quotes, the Saudis do. But... Thinking about that claim that what he does is take advantage of people's good nature and that's not fair. In all fairness, those two guys who take him in are really kind to him. They, they take him in off the streets, they don't know who he is, they look after him, they help him to find his daughter, they kind of give him a lot of help with that at the rally. They are not, and it's, that, like, it's actually almost kind of difficult to say, they are not out and out thoroughly bad people. In their interactions with other human beings, they are decent and kind and generous. It's just that their, their politics are absolutely distressingly deplorable. Mm. And I wonder if, whether it's intentional or not, that one of the things this film might leave us thinking is that there's a danger in kind of that tribalism 
and that assumption that the reason Trump got in power last time is that people are idiots or people are stupid or people are evil and that you know and that's the same in this country isn't it anyone who votes this way is that anyone who votes this way is that if you vote Tory you are essentially evil now I would never ever in a million years vote Tory and none of my best friends are Tories but there's a lot of people have commented that there's a danger in that kind of extreme tribalism isn't there in assuming that anyone who's not on your side is basically barely human and this film you know the woman who says she can show him to where the no means yes outfits are the woman who gives the daughter deplorable advice none of they're all friendly pleasant personable individuals and actually i think increasingly we do need reminding that the other side are humans as much as we might find every single thing they think politically to be diametrically opposed to ours. Do you think that is something the film shows or attempts to show? I think it does. I mean, I was just thinking there when you were speaking, I said that the, the two women in the synagogue were the only people who seem benevolent, but they're not because there's also the woman who advises the daughter on not yes. getting surgery. And I've seen that she has come out and said that she's mortified and feels like her, that she's, she was taken advantage of and her, and her good nature was was taken advantage of because she thought it was all real. But I mean, that is a problem with the hoax in general, isn't it? Mm. Like the hoax is designed to mislead and hoaxes wouldn't work if they didn't play on people's generosity. But yes. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, Th that woman isn't made to look remotely like an idiot, is she? When when she talks, those are your moments of, of hope for, for the world, aren't they? Because everything she says is like absolutely 100% spot on but I, I didn't know that she was I, I can understand why she would feel like that yeah well I think that's a lot of talking about Borat isn't it so um Spitting Image has come back and it's been back for a few weeks now we've obviously we have past form talking about Spitting Image we wrote a thing about it mm -hmm. in the metro that's been widely syndicated across the internet but uh but yeah so it's come back and I can't watch it because it's on Britbox or as uh, Jennifer Saunders referred to it in this week's episode of Halfback News View Netflix. Um, <laughs> but it is on Brit, Britbox, which I thought would diminish the power of Spitting Image in a way, because although I think Spitting Image was hit and miss the first time around from what I've seen of it, the power of it was that everybody watched it, that it was extremely topical, uh, it came out on a Friday, and then everyone on a Saturday would talk about what happened in Spitting Image. With it being on a subscription-only service, I wondered if that would not happen this time. However, uh, I think it's interesting that it has, has found a sort of semi-home on YouTube. Mm. Um, and they only upload three or four sketches a week from the episode. So the episode broadcasts and the next day they put three or four sketches on YouTube. And then those sketches are free to go viral. So I think there's two things that are good about that. One, it can be widely disseminated. And two, if it is hit and miss, you don't have to sit through the sketches. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it either. I haven't got um, bricked box but i have seen some of the clips it looks quite weak to me it looks yeah so i've only seen the bits on youtube as well um it's broad isn't it it's very broad it's quite puerile it's like a live action puppet version of dead ringers which is perfectly entertaining um i think dead ringers is better than this especially yeah. when it was on the radio i always loved well, dead ringers 
Yeah, the Dead Ringers TV show I thought was a bit weak. Dead Ringers and the Ring. Yeah. Well, um, I think the Dead Ringers TV show relied far too heavily on the Gladiator impression, didn't it? Which even by that time was pretty like dated and niche anyway. Well, when we wrote our widely syndicated article about this, we we said, you know, you've got to be careful not to glorify and render sympathetic the person you're targeting and also it's become a cliche to observe that people in their 80s and 90s who were targeted by spitting image with the exception of one or two said i think it was a wiener curry that that said it gets worst, your name out there and yeah the worst thing that could happen if you're a politician is if you're not on spitting image because it means that you're just a non-entity and as soon as this came out there was an interview with boris johnson where he was talking about how he likes to puppet and he thinks he's surprised it wasn't worse like he thought he deserved a more grotesque puppet so it's sort of can it be biting satire if it's been approved by the target no 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 um, did you know do you want to know a fact yeah did you know when Alan Partridge's Neri Mino and You was on the radio, there's an episode where he gets a, a kind of alternative stand-up Comic-Con who's also in, in his persona, um, is also a writer and impressionist on Spitzing Image. And Alan has got wind of a rumour that they're going to make a puppet out of him. And he's going like, go on, can, can you, can, are, are you making a puppet of me? And the guy says, um, oh, I can neither confirm or deny. And he goes, are they making a puppet out of me? No. And Alan has Alan is like good, good. That that's that's good. I few close close shave there, but then he forces the guy to do an impression of him because there's something there's something that tells you you're famous, isn't there? If someone can do an impression of you, and he, he forces him to do it, and obviously it's it's hugely insulting. And it has one of my favourite Alan Partridge lines in when. Uh, the guy says that he, he says, I'm Alan Partridge. I'm the non-thinking man's Umberto Eco. And Alan says, what's Umberto Eco? Translate that now. He's a stereologist. <laughs> so yeah, there's some interesting uh, knowledge for you. Yeah, and he was, Steve Coogan was a voice artist on. Yes, yeah. So there's a nice, nice, nice. That's very nice. Meta. It's I very nice. Yeah. I haven't listened to all the radio. No, me, no, you. I need to get on that. Yeah, so, uh, so. So, so there's that. I mean, should, do you want to watch a clip? Should we see a clip and talk yeah, about it? Yeah, all right, let's watch a clip, yeah. Would you like to watch a clip of Boris Johnson or Donald Trump? Good God. Um, it's like shit or shite, isn't it? Um, uh, shall we watch a clip of Boris Johnson? Yes, okay. So I'll share the screen. Can you see it now? Yep. Uh, I'm not sure about starting. Attention, you, the underclass. Yes, we should cut the niceties and get straight to sacrifice yourself for the good of the hive. All right, and by hive, you mean... I mean, future of the hive. I, I mean, country. Are you dissatisfied with me? Perhaps you would like to fire me? Oh, I, I, I don't think that would be necessary. I thought not. <coughs> so, this is what you call a baby? Um, yes. It looks delicious. May I eat it? <laughs> be good. I'm afraid not. Uh, carry would be furious. Then I shall not do that. Instead, I shall eat some of your earth snacks. <laughs> Good uh, now, uh, you're right. Composting the drones will ensure the survival of the elite. Is there a problem? Well, it's more of a Cameron Osborne type of policy. It is not liberal or conservative. It is basic hive maintenance. Yeah, I saw a bit more sunlit upland, pins in deck chairs, and a bit less vaporising strikers with death rays. I didn't come all the way from Epsilon 5, I mean Durham, to write a speech with no death rays. Perhaps you would like to fire me. Oh, I, I don't think that would be necessary. I thought not. I have consumed my snack. 
Are you sure I can't eat the baby? Uh, yes, I'm sure you can't eat the baby. If I did, would you fire me? Well, I, I don't think that's necessary. Well, you didn't laugh out loud. Didn't like it. No. What do, what do you think? I think it's weak. Yeah. Um, I think uh, maybe it's too close to home because the premise here is Dominic Cummings is an, is an alien and he's in control of Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson can't tell him to go away and can't be in charge of anything himself. But Dominic Cummings isn't a comedy alien. He's a real man who really is having huge impact on how this country is run, despite the fact that nobody elected him. He really did have a serious effect on the nation's observation of lockdown rules when he decided they didn't apply to him. And he really is going to be significantly instrumental in ensuring we crash out of the EU without a deal. And I feel like you need to do more to critique that if critiquing it is what you want to do, than sort of portray him as a comic book evil alien. I think the work that Borat does in exposing what is rotten about contemporary American society is it asks more of the audience and it does more work in itself. Whereas that is stupid puppets saying catchphrases. And I think it's, it, it feels, it just, it just feels ill judged and it, if what you want is to kind of have a rueful cozy laugh at just how fucked we all are spitting image might entertain you for half an hour but for me like if i want to have a cozy laugh i don't want to be thinking about boris johnson dominic cummings coronavirus or anything else i want to think about something different and if i want to be challenged and to engage with some powerful satire then i don't i'm not getting it there no I mean, I, I was reading an interview with uh, these features are ten a penny at the moment. Where it's like people yeah. who, were, who were satirized by spitting image remember what it was like or whatever. And I can't remember who was it, who it was that said, but someone said I thought it wasn't very good, and I always felt like the pre the actual show never lived up to the puppets. And I think that's probably the the most the power of spitting image, for good or bad, is that it creates these simple images of people. So I can't. The leader of the Liberal Democrat Party in the original spitting image was presented as being tiny and the people would put him in their pocket or like literally put him under their thumb and stuff like that. Or, you know, John Major being grey or whatever. That sort of seems to be... So if you've not watched Spitting Image, everybody knows that has probably seen a picture of the puppet of Michael Gove with his big cheeks and stuff. like yeah. that. And, and the, idea, the vision of Dominic Cummings as this science fiction insectoid alien is probably, you know, there's a good chance that that, that might mar him. But, it, but also, it, yeah, it explains away his agency, doesn't it? I mean, the joke... I think the main joke of that is that Boris Johnson won't sack him, even if he ate his own baby. Even if Dominic Cummings ate Boris Johnson's baby, he wouldn't get sacked. And that's the joke. But it's coincidentally also true. Yeah, it is. It's hollow. And um, from the clips that I've seen, I find the, the Donald Trump one's funniest, maybe because it's not as close to home. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm pretty terrified by Trump as well, to be fair. But, yeah. so... It's Adam and Joe's hostage to fortune moment. Not anymore. The Donald Trump one, there's a recurring sketch where he makes, he's made a deal with the COVID virus, uh, which is a physical entity that he talks to. And then I think that that joke pays off in about week three where Trump gives the virus Trump. So the virus ends up with like big yellow hair and stuff, but it's, it's basic, isn't it? It's the Sesame Street of satire. 
So there's a puppet of Greta Thunberg. Yeah, she's, the show's been attacked for that puppet. The Metro ran a headline that said, as an autistic person spitting images, Greta is attired and stereotypical. Um, the Sun described it as bigoted and unkind. There was a big flurry of debate on Twitter about this. If it was punching down uh, evolved politics, said the fact spitting image have decided it's acceptable to mock a 17-year-old with autism is disgusting. Greta isn't even rich or powerful. She doesn't need holding to account. The show's defense is, it's a very straightforward joke and it's nothing to do with her as an individual. If the show isn't stirring controversy, it's probably not doing what it's set out to do or being true to its origins. What do you think about that? Um, okay, well, I think it's important. It, didn't she say, Greta Thunberg herself said she is, is okay with this. Like she thought it was quite funny that there was a puppet of her. Um, I think it's, it seems slightly basic and it's one of those instances of people kind of refusing to see any nuance or to, and, and taking things maybe literally because they're not mocking her for being a 17 year old with autism. But the fact that she isn't rich and the fact that she isn't in power doesn't necessarily mean that she isn't powerful. Greta Thunberg does have power in the world. She also has a lot of um, intense critics and faces a lot of criticism for what she does. But I think to say that it's straightforwardly the case that she has no power and therefore doesn't need holding to account is not entirely true. But I also don't think that the show is holding her to account. I mean, the show's defence that you quoted there, it's a very straightforward joke. I feel like that should be the tagline for Spitting Image. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't get the sense that they are kind of trying to target her as an individual, but she is a fairly prominent figure in, in culture at the moment. and as such you know that the show shows us who is active on the global stage and what people are saying about them and what their characteristics are so i don't think she's automatically off the list of people you can make a puppet of i don't necessarily know what the satire is you'd be doing or why and i suppose unwittingly they've um they've answered all of that by confirming that it is indeed a very straightforward joke um, it's probably disingenuous to say it's nothing to do with her as an individual because that is precisely what you made a puppet of. But yeah, when they say this bit, if the show isn't stirring controversy, it's probably not doing what it set out to do or being true to its origins. I feel like I want it to stir controversy about, you know, the, the real things it's parodying or the events that it's talking about, not controversy in the sense of should you have made that puppet or shouldn't you? It comes back to those, those those early debates about what satire is, doesn't it? Like if it's just the case of causing trouble, that's not, it's not satirical just to piss everyone. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's straightforward, a straightforward joke. That's what Spitting Image is. One other news story that I thought was more interesting was that NBC has refused to broadcast the show in America because they said they don't want to offend Donald Trump and people in power, which has prompted Roger Law to come back and say, if it's going to be on regular NBC television, I'm not in the least bit surprised that it was dropped. In America, there's a superficial politeness to this country of people who have all got guns. You're, um, you've someone like Trump running the country, yet Americans call him sir. That wouldn't happen here in Britain. People here are rude to one another and, and they have a taste for cruel humour. People went out and voted for Boris. We make him look like a shambles and yet they're still very happy to laugh at it. It's interesting that this, that this is considered too controversial for America when it's so fucking basic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to know more about why it was dropped, wouldn't you? You know, whether it genuinely was because they thought it would be too offensive. If they thought, if that is why it was dropped, that's a good story for Spitting Image. If they just 
for other reasons didn't want to air it then it's not very good maybe but i don't do we do we know i don't I, I don't i think there's a lot of speculation about it. the headlines were all nbc too afraid to publish this but i don't know the the reason nbc dropped it i think they said it wasn't appropriate or it wasn't in fitting with their broadcasting policy or something i mean but they've sort of whatever the reason was they've got around it i mean there's two things, isn't there? On the one hand, they're trying to maybe disseminate their satire to do some good. Doesn't sound like it from the way they talk, to be honest. But by putting it on YouTube, it has found a, a global audience anyway. But then I'm not naive enough to think the reason they've done that is to spread their satirical message. It's to bring people back to subscribing to BritBox, isn't it? I think and, the last bit of what Roger Law said here is quite telling about the variety of satire that Spitting Image is and sets out to be. So he's basically saying the reason it works and the reason they've written it is because British people like cruel humour. So they, that it comes from cruel humour and it appeals to a taste for cruel humour. People went out and voted for Boris, we make him look like a shambles and yet they're still very happy to laugh at it. So it seems to me like their aim here is is just to just to do cruel humour. Like, isn't, isn't it funny that Boris Johnson has silly hair or he says that won't be necessary a lot. He's aware that there is potentially something weird about the fact that more people voted for Boris than voted for the alternative, but they still seem to lap up a caricature of him. But I find that that's kind of more depressing, isn't it? We're a country where we'll, we'll vote for people who, or some people will vote for people who they are happy to accept is a fucking joke yeah. and are happy for other people to mock him and satirise him. Yeah. But essentially the situation remains the same. I feel like if you voted for him, you should probably find this really offensive. You, yeah. you, shouldn't, you shouldn't think it's funny and you shouldn't think it's funny that he's in power because you put him there. And if you didn't, then you might want something a little bit more biting than this to, um, to target him. But that to me says... Spitty image is not out to change anything and it doesn't have any aspiration or hope that it will change anything. It's just that British people have this quirk where they can see that everything's bad or ridiculous and they're quite happy to have a laugh about that. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I agree. Have you seen Sassy Justice with Fred Sassy? A very small bit of it in some clips. Um, this, yeah. which is a new YouTube series launched by um, the creators of, of South Park. And Peter Serafinovich as well, isn't yeah. it? Peter Serafinovich is doing the voice, is doing the impressions, and Matt Stone and Trey, Trey Parker are writing it, and yeah, they're writing it and doing it. I actually think this is what Spitting Image should be in 2020. So, oh, no, not so many puppets. <laughs> yeah, well, so the sort of so for people who haven't encountered this yet, basically what it is is it's a deep fake. They use deep fake technology to have created this TV show that's presented by the, this fictional internet persona who is described as an American consumer advocate and reporter for Cheyenne News at Nine, Fred Sassy. But what Fred Sassy actually is, is it's one of them dressed up as this extraordinarily camp man, but then deep fakes Donald Trump's face onto it. And then he goes on and he's going to do these 15 minute reports on a regular basis. And then, but he, then he's able to go and speak to people, politicians and stuff, who are also deep, deep fake renditions of those people. And uh, I mean, it reminds me a bit of Brass Eye in, in sort of the way that it's parodying that, that format of news thing. The first episode is about the threat of deep fake technology, and it's made completely with deep fake technology. And there's bits where they go and speak to a deep fake specialist who's obviously a deep fake themselves. Um, who says it, the, the reason this technology is so dangerous is because you can't tell the difference between deep fake and real life. And then they're like, for example, look at this deep fake clip of Tom Cruise. And it's a, it's a puppet of Tom Cruise. It's yeah. very obviously not real. 
So the joke is like you can tell when it's deep fake or not. But then, yeah, so they go through all of these conversations. I mean, there's one extremely, the one bit that I thought was really clever where they speak to Michael Caine. He, he, the, Michael Caine is saying, you don't need to worry about deep fake technology because no one can do an impression good enough to fool people. Like people can tell the difference between human voices. But obviously it's a deep fake of Michael Caine with our impressionist doing the voice. Um, so there's there's all of that going on, but uh, but it's sort of the most effective scene I think is the one I sent you on WhatsApp. Or did you watch that one? Uh, the very beginning of it, and then we started recording this. Right. So. In the scene, um, the Fred Sassy, who's really got Donald Trump's face, is interviewing Donald Trump's son-in-law, who's obviously Ivanka's husband and a very powerful politician. But they've put his face on a little on a little boy, like a child, and then they've got a child to do it. So. He's saying things like, why did you do this? And he's like, daddy said that I am in charge of the Middle East. And he's like, what, why did you say that? He's like, daddy said it didn't happen. Daddy said what didn't happen? He's like, the Holocaust. And like, once you've seen him as a tiny child, it has the, the impact that Spit Image used to have, but it's just so much more effective doing it with this deep fake stuff. Sounds like and, uh, those Haribo adverts. It is exactly that, except it's literally this guy's face on a child. Um, so all of that is, I think, very, I, I, I thought it was really clever. I thought it was really enjoying. And then there's loads of deep cut jokes for South Park fans as well. Like the Tom Cruise section calls back to the time where they had all that trouble because they made fun of Tom Cruise. And yeah, so I thought that was great. That's oh, so that's, out of all the satire we've talked about so far, we've got... Um, Borat, hit. Sassy Justice, hit. Joan and Jerrica, hit, but maybe less of the Adam Buxton. I think all podcasts should have less Adam talking. Just just let the uh, let the other person talk. No, not really. Um, and Oast House, hit, but not full-on satire. So is there any one other thing that we should talk about um, or blag about because we haven't seen it, do you think? Well, very briefly, it follows nicely on from the Fred Sassy stuff. There was a South Park pandemic special, wasn't there? And I, again, again, YouTube. YouTube is the vehicle for satire. Like, yeah. I can't, can't access it in the UK, but we can watch clips of it. Another day inside, don't have to do a thing. I love your social distancing. No one's around, no one's talking to me. Social distancing, I'm free. Don't have to brush my teeth or shower. I can sit on the toilet for hours. Cause no one's saying to me. You can should get outside and listen to me. Oh, 9 a.m. time for ski. Good morning, guys. Everyone ready to start school? Okay, I think we're all here. I see Jimmy and Clyde are on now. Eric, are you there? Yes, teacher, I'm here. I can't wait to start skip, skip, skip. It, it. Oh no, Eric, I think your computer is freezing up again. Oh no, really? Can you guys hear me? I just said it, 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 it. Eric, you'll just have to listen again, okay? Best you can. So let's start today, guys, by going over yesterday's grammar examples. Wendy, can you read the first one? I'm cut off from the world, isolated alone. This is what I call existencing. No one can touch me or boss me around. Social distancing. Eric, aren't you supposed to be on your Zoom call? Stay away from me, Yeah, you got to keep your social distance. Cause all I'm gonna do is sing. I know this is a challenging time. Yeah. 
I mean, so they, they do, they do, they have to go to school using social distancing measures. And Cartman says it's an infringement of civil liberties to force him back into school, which I sort of agree with if you can do it online. What the fuck are you talking about? There's going to be a big meeting. Sounds like they're trying to get you kids back to school. We can't go back to school. There's a fucking pandemic. Oh, no, I see. There's all this horrible stuff going on in the world, but apparently Cartman's life doesn't matter. Eric, you can't uh, get back, get back six feet, ma'am. Six fucking feet. But then, you know, and there's another controversial scene where the police come in and start shooting to try and get them to obey social distancing rules, but go out of their way to shoot Token, which is the black student, which is obviously a commentary on everything that's happened in Black Lives Matter. But the thing that sort of got most people talking was that they broke the fourth wall at the end for the first time. Yeah, um, which also um, Borat does at the end, does it? So yeah. they both with uh, please vote and that's striking as well for South Park because they have a reputation for during election campaigns of suggesting that everything is shit and there's no point in voting because whatever you get is going to be shit I think they did an episode the episode is called like poop or shit or something and it's like whatever you choose it's going to be bad but now they're going they, they are saying go and vote yeah. so Listeners in America, you should go and vote. I suspect by the time this comes out, well, I think even by the time we're talking about it, quite a lot of them have, and by the time it goes out, they definitely will have probably, won't they? But um, they will. how many listeners have we got in America? Not, there are some. Yeah, 11% of our listener base are based somewhere in America, more so in this last month since we spoke to Lee Stein. Yeah, our, our listeners probably would vote, wouldn't they? But um, yeah. The end of the satirical news. Yeah, strange times, isn't it? When the uh, when the satire sort of pauses doing the satire to just say a literal bold um, request, please vote. It's like interesting, interesting, interesting times. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about in this this here little podcast? No, I think we've probably. I can't think of anything else. We've covered quite a lot. Of, we must be approaching the two hour mark now. So uh, one hour seventeen. Okay, this is, yeah, well, I'll edit that out. But gotta do stand-up. Gotta do stand-up. Is there anything you want to talk about? Anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, that's probably all of everything, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think that is all of everything. Do you think that you're getting COVID? Do I think, what do you mean, like in my isolation? Yeah. No, I don't think I am. I'll tell you what, the thing that is, obviously I've not had COVID that I know of, but something that is also awful is uh, the hypochondria. Mm. Like constantly thinking, oh, is my sore throat because I recorded 24 lectures in the last six weeks or is my throat sore because I have COVID? You know, am I, am I warm because it's 15 degrees in the flat because I don't want to turn the heating on because it's all the time? Or am I warm because I've got a temperature? It's like, that's the kind of... Absolutely. I mean, I always get a sore throat after recording and generally I do after teaching or lecturing in, in, in normal times. But now, um, like say on a Sunday afternoon when you've finished doing all your recording or whatever and you have a sore throat, yeah, it, it feels differently, doesn't it? And also this year, that sore throat after teaching was at the exact point when like a lot of the things we were doing and activities we were doing in terms of work had, had changed. So you are kind of more on the, on the lookout for it, aren't you? But Five days into self-isolation, if I had it, I would be no, I'd know by now, wouldn't I, you think? I don't, I don't know, but this is going to look hella ironic when it comes out. If... Well, this is what I was just going to say, is like, if I do get it, I said this to some students the other day, because we've all recorded a lot of lectures. I've recorded, I feel like, an, well, I've got 27 lectures to do in 13 weeks, so I've recorded a lot of content. Weird and I said place. to them, I was like, it is, it is a weird place, but I just want people to know that that's what I've done. And um, I said to the students, I said, you know, if I die from COVID during this self-isolation, 
that's gonna be fucking haunting for you. Like <laughs> 27 hours of your recently deceased lecturer available to watch on catch up. Like that's, you're ghosting the machine then, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that's potentially, you've, you've potentially like traumatized them quite a lot there, haven't you? Cause they, I mean, the thing is, if you, di if you did die of COVID, I think it's quite vain to think that they're going to sit there and listen to the lectures repeatedly uh, again and again. They wouldn't have to watch them again and again, but they'd be there on Moodle, wouldn't they? They'd see like, so I did, I did think, I did think about that. I was also, and this isn't satire, but I've recently watched The Haunting of Bly Manor. And there's a bit where one character is talking to another character who is a ghost. And I won't yeah. say who they are because I don't want to spoil it, but she, she says to him, I, you know, it, this is awful because I can see you and it feels like you're here, but I can't touch you. I can't feel you. And he's like, yeah, no, I know. It's, it's awful for me as well because that's how I feel. And I was like, that's, that is life now, isn't it? <laughs> you can see anyone you like for as long as you like and you can have all the conversations you want but you can't be physically in the, you've got no you've got no density yeah you, you can't even have them in a room with you in a lot of instances either even to find out whether if you tried to walk into them you'd just come out the other side i mean my kids couldn't have come home the other weekend but if they had the, normally the first thing we do is try and like walk through each other yeah to check ghosts but um i wouldn't have even been able to do that and I, you're you know, right if anything yeah. those two people in that conversation didn't realize how lucky they were because at least they're in the same room yeah. yeah she wasn't in like tier three of ghostiness <laughs> no no but yeah she also couldn't leave could you nobody who's a ghost can leave they just run to the edge of the the estate and get bounced back which, well, that's, what uh, like. that's what it's like for me now lucy although i was thinking i might treat myself to taking the rubbish out later Mm, nice yeah, that'd be, yeah well maybe wait till it's dark which will be about half past two won't it on current predictions yeah right so shall we ride this pig into town yes uh so you've been listening to smith and Walt talk about satire if you enjoyed the podcast or engage with the podcast or aware of the podcast please do let us know by hitting us up on social media where can they do that joe on twitter at satire no more and on instagram now as well can't they say so, yes. what, what's the instagram handle at talk about satire right yeah that's that's your ways or you could email us satire no more at gmail.com send us your long letters and we'll we might read those out oh there is one actually there is one other thing which is that we did get a letter well we did get some correspondence after our last episode where we did the love in a cold climate covid lockdown segment we read out someone's classified ad someone looking for a lover who said i'm looking for a woman with blonde hair blue eyes love to the end of the time i'm a painter i hate indiana jones films and we talked about how it was a tell that he hates Indiana Jones films. Well, someone has written to us to say, obviously that person was Hitler. Yes, because yeah. uh, I'd, I'd forgotten the quite significant element in Indiana Jones films of uh, the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's because when I first watched Indiana Jones, I was a small child and that bit didn't make sense to me. So I always just kind of ignored it. And I only really focused on like the snakes bit and uh, yeah. all the kind of big scenes. But I always used to forget that there was Nazis in it. I'm sure I told you this previously, but when I had my interview for Cambridge, you have to write down the last five books that you've read. And I was struggling for a fifth book because I was because I was like nervous, really. I've obviously read more than five books. Um, but I put Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code on there, which I hadn't finished reading, but I was like, everyone's read that. So it's plausible that I would have read that. And then obviously in the interview, that was the book that they started asking me about. And that one of the questions was, I'm so ashamed of this now. Like one of the questions was, uh, what do you think? Don't you think that the representation of Catholicism is problematic? Demonization of Catholicism. And I said, no, I don't think it is. I think it's fine because you didn't see people getting up. <laughs> you didn't feel like they were giving you a steer there. <laughs> yeah, I said, 
No, because you don't, you don't see people getting upset about the representation of Nazis in Indiana Jones films, do you? You punch as many Nazis as you like and nobody minds. So well, it, it's in fiction. It's not real. It's a representation. So, so there we go. So 18-year-old Adam, what are you talking about? Well, 18-year-old Joe similarly failed to impress at her Cambridge interview. Um, and I think I, I possibly did worse because rather than fucking up by showing I hadn't read to the end of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, I, I think I said, I definitely said that I didn't like Jane Austen. And I think I might have said I didn't like poetry either, which was a bit stupid. <laughs> They would just prefer novels. Yeah. And and yet somehow neither of us got in. How how strange. Well, the universe works the way that it should, and I wouldn't change a moment of it. Except I wish I do just wish that I hadn't said that. <laughs> <laughs> I do just wish I'd said no. It's fine. It's fine to demonise Catholics because. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg demonised Nazis and no one gets upset about that. I can't believe how in the moment I couldn't see how many dimensions by which that was wrong. But anyway. Sliding doors, huh? Yeah. Hey ho. Right. So, yeah. goodbye everyone. Goodbye listeners. Goodbye. Do we have any advice to round up the show? Cool. I'll come back for the next episode where we'll be talking to Andrew Doyle. Yeah. And uh, sit up. Shut up. Wear a mask. Stay alert. And eat my satire. Bye. Goodbye. Trapped in my flat, only my memories for comfort.